Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered, entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priest and the officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Then came the first day of the unleavened bread of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he'd reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. But behold... The hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and a leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail and you when once you have turned again, strengthened your brothers. But he said to them, Lord, with you, I am ready to go 
both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you know me. And Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. Lord, we again turn to you and ask for help as we work our way through this passage. Lord, guide us now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the first two verses, we kind of get this, this situation or the scenario, the, the big picture of what's happening. We learned now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, which is approaching. This was or is still to the Jewish people a, the largest of all of their, their feasts. Every adult male that was 12 years and older was required to come to Jerusalem for this feast time. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted for seven days. It was to celebrate the Passover found in Exodus. The Passover was only one night. It was the first night they would, that would kick off the celebration of the week. And so it was a big deal. They're in Jerusalem. Every Jewish male and probably their families that could make it are in town for this holiday. It was huge. I mean, wall-to-wall packed with people. We learned that that night was approaching of the Passover. And as this is all happening, in the midst of this, we learned that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. So they were furious with Jesus. They were going to execute their plan to put him to death. They didn't know how they were going to do it. And part of the problem was, is they wanted him dead. But on the other side, there was this resistance because he had such a huge following of people. And they were afraid of these people. If they did something to him, then these people would react and and basically could cause a revolt, could cause some sort of um, uh, tension in the streets that would cause the Roman authorities to basically crack down on them and take away their authority. And as this situation is kind of developing, we learn about Judas. We see that Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. See, so now Judas realizes this tension that they're in. He's going to go there and try to come up with a plan that would allow them to arrest and basically execute Jesus in a way that that would be separate from this, this following of people, that it would be discreet, that it wouldn't cause this big riot. And at the beginning of this, the, the phrase that really just has all week, as I've, I've been moving boxes and going back and forth, the thing that really stood out to me was this phrase that Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot. I don't think Judas started out as a bad guy. He followed after Jesus. He loved Jesus. And it's somewhere in this journey, we see that Satan entered into his heart and led him astray. Now, the first thing I want to say is I don't think that the Christian can be indwelt by Satan. First John 4, 4 tells us clearly that you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than is in the world. So we're told that in Christ... We have the spirit within us. 
And the spirit indwells us. And the spirit that's within us, Satan cannot come invade that space. Now, with that being said, that doesn't mean that the Christian can't be influenced by Satan. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27, we're given this warning by Paul. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So here Paul kind of gives this warning. He's like, hey, if you're going to be angry, okay, there's certain situations where anger is justified. There's a certain sense of righteous anger when we see things in our world that, that cause us anger because it goes against the things of God, things that are just wrong. But he says, well, as you're angry, make sure in that you don't cross over the line where you begin to sin. And when you cross over this, this line, it, it creates this foothold or this opportunity for Satan to get his claws into you and to start kind of guiding you off track. And in, in the situation that Paul presents, it's anger. That's like the foothold. Judas, I think that the foothold for him was money. Like as we look at the, the accounts of things, when, when people, the lady comes and she breaks this expensive jar of perfume on Jesus, he kind of recoils like, hey, what, wait, we could have, why didn't you sell that? We could have, we could have fed the poor with it. But the issue is money. That he, he kept the checking account and he's going he's gonna to go over to this, the, the Pharisees and it's, to get some money is the thing that he's going to sell Jesus out for. At the end of the day, he goes back and he throws it at them. And I, thought he, I think he thought that he, they were just going like, to take him into custody and talk to him. And when, they saw, when he saw during the arrest that they arrested him for the sake of execution, he was like, uh-oh, this is really bad. And then he throws it back at him and he goes and he commits suicide. So there's all kind of areas where the, Satan can get a foothold into our hearts. And for me, like I'm just looking at this kind of, you know, the funny thing is we'll see. And it's like, don't go announcing it to the church because we don't know how. So I'm saying this with a big star. But as we, you know, we go through the move and in Valley Center, there's certain areas where you have, you know, wireless internet is available or internet is available in certain spots not available in other spots and we're in a spot where we basically you know come down to the irreducible minimum where there's like one option but we getting to this place there was kind of like some we thought we were okay, but then it got shot down, and then we're kind of going forward. And in this journey, Anna and I, oh, I kind of look at Anna, I'm like, maybe we should, like, what do you think about doing, like, a little internet fast at our house? Like, maybe we stall a little bit. Like, let's, let's wait maybe till June. Like, let's just take May and not do internet at our house. She's like, I think that's a good idea. And I'm like, well, no, no, it doesn't count my phone, because it doesn't count, like, going to Starbucks or come into the church because I have to, there's, I have to work on the internet, but we're like, why don't like, let's just give it a shot. She's like, no, I like the internet. It's always there. And her brother, who's a computer programmer has one of the the best lines that I've ever heard. He's like, man, the internet's not going to surf itself. Somebody's got to do it, you know? So like this, this idea, but it's so easy to get kind of, for me, like sucked in. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying for me, like I've noticed that it's just like, it's so easy to get stuck on my computer working and then all of a sudden kind of end up in some other land. 
And so you can fast food, you can, not fast food like McDonald's, but you can withhold food from yourself to say, Lord, like I'm not going to eat because I want you to kind of refine me, show my heart, let it surface. And so you can fast other things. You can fast media, you can fast TV, you can fast the radio and just say, no, Lord, I want to be still and hear your voice. Like, I don't want the devil to get a foothold in my heart. And so right now, at least for today, we don't have internet at our house. We're going to attempt to go the whole month. We'll see how far we actually get down this road. But we're doing a little experiment. Apparently, you can live, but I don't know. You know, we'll we'll see what happens. And so, so I think at the point here, when I look at Judas, and I see that this Satan entered into Judas's heart, we naturally think, oh, Judas is this really bad guy. Like, I would never be like Judas. Like, I notice, you know, people just, there's not a whole lot of Judases around. Like, I don't know why people don't name their kids Judas. Because it's like this bad, bad name. But I think what we need to realize here is that Judas is just like us. Like, Judas is like us. And that we struggle, like we are vulnerable to Satan getting his claws into us and steering us away from the things of the Lord. And so I would ask you, especially coming to communion, we know that one of the very first elements of communion is to kind of be reflective in our own life and to ask the Lord to show you sin in areas where you've gotten your life off track. Like I love that Keith Green song that we say like, you know, no, no white lie, no empty promises or no white lies like this whole that we're just real with the Lord and say, Lord, I'm weak and I need you and I need you to expose the sin in my heart and the areas, the vices that are that are holding me back from walking with you. And I don't know what yours are. Maybe it's golf. Sorry if I step on that. That's a dangerous. Maybe it's golf. Maybe it's working. Maybe it's TV. But to ask the Lord, Lord, are there things right now that are not in and of themselves bad things, but I've kind of gotten off track and and my heart is strayed from you where I'm not giving you attention? Maybe there's something that you need to give up for a day or a week or a month or forever. Like, I don't know. But that's for you to ask God as we're leading into communion. Lord, search my heart as David prayed. Search my heart. Let me, I want to walk with you. And as this happens, Jesus basically doesn't totally call out Judas. He kind of says what's, what's happening here. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. This happened. Judas goes off to his plan. He said, I'll come up with a plan of how we'll get Jesus. We know that he was going to betray him with a kiss. Which has always been interesting to me. Like if they hated Jesus so much, why did they need Judas to walk up to him, to kiss him, to like identify him? Like like maybe they never really investigated who Jesus actually was and the things that he said. They just heard about him and they hated what they heard about him, but they didn't know him. And I think there's so many people like that in our culture who've rejected Christ. But it's not that they've actually rejected Christ. They've rejected a caricature. Is that how do you say that word? Caricature? A, a, a skewed picture of him because of what they think he is. And verse 7. The, then came the first day of unleavened bread. 
on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this Passover lamb, every family, every person going in there, they would sacrifice the lamb. They were to sacrifice it, and then they were to eat it. This was reflection of the last plague that came through during Egypt's time that that God said, okay, slaughter a lamb, put the blood on your doorpost, and that night I'm going to come through and take the firstborn male of every home. But the home where the blood of the lamb is, I'll pass over that home and spare the firstborn son. And from that day forward, this is the biggest event that happened in Israel's history, a foreshadow of what Christ would do on the cross for those that would trust in him. And so when Passover came, it was time that that night was approaching. They needed to slaughter the lamb for their Passover meal. And Jesus, verse 8, sent Peter and John saying, these guys are always coupled together, the old guy with the young guy, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. So they're somewhere, probably somewhere, in the Jerusalem area, and Jesus says, okay, you guys got to, you have to go prepare a spot for us. But it's like, it's a major holiday, the biggest one they have. Everybody's there, every room's taken, every banquet hall's taken, every opportunity. And I love these guys kind of said, okay, that's great. Where do you want us to prepare it? Like, what do you want us to do, Jesus? We're, we're, we're happy to prepare, but where? Like, where's the spot? We don't have a spot that we're like staying that can accommodate us. And Jesus in verse 10 said to them, when you have entered this city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. Now let's kind of slow down. How would you guys feel about this instruction? We're, we're up on Palomar. Jesus says, hey, I want you to go prepare a meal for the Passover. Okay, well, where do you want us to do this? Okay, I want you to go down to the country junction area down at Valley Center. Just go stand in the parking lot and you'll find a guy that hops into a red car. Just follow him to his house. And then when he enters his house, just walk in. I'd be a little bit kind of hesitant. But so far, that's the plan that they're given. I think Jesus, they're done kind of questioning him because he's already with the donkey you know, Grand Theft Donkey earlier when they came in, they just took somebody's brand new donkey, rode it in a town. So this sounds very similar to them. Verse 11, as you follow into the, as you follow this guy with the water into the house and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So as this guy enters the house, another person is going to come up, the owner of the house. Tell that guy, hey, the master sent me and he said to you, where's your, where's your furnished room or your room that we can have a meal, your banquet hall? And he'll just tell you where it is. Okay, Jesus. Verse 12, and he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. So it's this beautiful setting. These guys, by faith, there's no resistance that we see. They just kind of go there. It's just as Jesus says, there's this room. They would have prepared this Passover meal, slaughtering the lamb. Like, so they got a lamb. They slaughtered the lamb. They prepared the lamb. They set it up in the house. They would have had bread. They would have had spices and wine. They would have had everything that they had to do to celebrate the Passover, to remember what God did in Israel 
many, many years ago as they were in bondage in Egypt and God was freeing them. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. These guys didn't understand what was going on. When we get gripped with like death and the reality, things get serious. Like Alberto in the hospital right now is very, very serious. You don't go to critical care unless they are very concerned for your situation, grave situation. Most of us, when this, not most of us, none of us in this room have quite experienced that because we're all alive yet, the ultimate death. But it normally kind of catches us by surprise. The guys that are on death row and they know that they're going to be executed the next day, they give them their last meal and they're able to do a few things. And there's something heavy about this meal. And so Jesus understands what's going to go down within 24 hours. But the rest of them don't. They're kind of, they don't get it until after the fact when all is said and done. And these words, these four little words of Jesus that I've earnestly desired, that Jesus has been looking forward to this meal with them. It's, it's the end of his mission to them. That he longs to sit down to have this Passover meal, which he would fulfill the Passover the next day. Verse 16, for I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I don't mean... I don't quite totally understand. I mean, he, there's over the kingdom of God. Was it, is it here? Has it been established? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I, I, we know that in 2443, when he appears with him again, he eats some fish. There was a time before that when he broke the bread and gave thanks for the food. But right when they figured out, when, right when he did that, they figured out who he was and then he vanished. So I don't think he ate at that point. But over in 24, he eats some broiled fish with the guys. And so I, like, I'm just looking at this. But Jesus says, this, the kingdom is going to be fulfilled soon. This is the last time I'm going to eat. And when he'd taken the cup, just a glass of wine, and given thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. So he takes his cup and he passes it around. This table where they'd be reclining, it would be low to the ground. They likely would have their feet kicked out and their kind of elbow on the table. Elbows on the table, I think we're okay in that culture. In our culture, it's not. It's, you know, it's elbow. I forget the saying. That's another, that's for another day. Another subject matter. We don't do etiquette here. But they're laying there. He takes the cup and he, he, he gave God thanks. He blessed the meal and he says, here, share this among yourselves. And they kind of each kind of take a sip. And I'm imagining like a dark room with, with some sort of fire burning to illuminate it. The cup's being passed. And verse um, 18, he says, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. So he says the same sort of statement. And I don't know that they are getting any, like, what is he talking about? Verse 19, And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is a new covenant in my blood. So he takes the bread. He takes the wine. The main emphasis here, he says that it was, Do this in remembrance of me. He's there presently. They are not remembering him. They know him on the spot. But he's saying, when you take the bread, the broken uh, piece of flattened bread, the cracker, when you take the juice, every time you consume it, do it in remembrance of me. I don't know that it's just like we celebrate communion uh, around once a month. Some people do it every Sunday. Some people like to do it every day. The Bible just says as often as you do this. There's a side of me that thinks that Jesus wanted to give them a very tangible sort of uh, remembrance, whether it was like every meal, every time they took bread or they took a sip of wine. I can't help but to think that this image would come to them, seeing their Lord crucified, be buried for three days and be risen. That every time I think I had a, a piece of bread, I think I would have this flashback. Every time a cup of wine came my way and I tasted the, the, the vine, the juice of the vine, I would have this flashback to that time. You know how there are certain smells that just kind of take you back. There are times we get smells or we're somewhere and we can't, we're like, I just, this takes me back somewhere, but I haven't pieced it together. It's a memorial. These are just elements. There's nothing special in of themselves. It's grape juice and crackers. We're doing this to remember that every time that like we eat, like, and I don't do this. I wish, you know, if I had a cheeseburger and the bread broke <clears throat> to lead me back to the cross, like the song, like, oh, Jesus's body was broken for me. That this is the anchor in my life, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, that everything I do is that's the foundation point. But before this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body given for you. I have that highlighted. Jesus died on the cross for you. Given for you. It was not taken. It was given. He chose to give his life for us. Then later as the juice, it says poured out for you. That as his blood was spilled, it was poured out for you. There's no way we can understand the magnitude of, of Jesus' love. He is love. He embodies love. And he went to the cross out of his great love for us. And in the midst of this, we see a but. Verse 21. He, he's, he's giving this great picture of his love, what he's about to do for them, which they don't understand. And he says, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table somebody in that room one of these 12 guys he says one of you is going to betray me he doesn't he doesn't say which one he doesn't like just call out judas he's obviously going to cause this sort of this tension amongst themselves this this lack of their own security their own competence to stand strong for him which ultimately through this story is a lesson that we need to take. It's not on our own ability that we walk with the Lord. It's in our inability, in our unableness 
to be righteous. It's only because of what he does for us. We need to depend on him. It says, for indeed, verse 22, the son of man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Man, I wish I could have been in the head of Judas. Like if there was like a marquee over his head kind of scrolling his thoughts, which I'm sure Jesus had. Was he like sick to his stomach going, he knows exactly he's talking to me. Maybe all of them were thinking this very same thing. But Judas just coming from the Pharisees, like he knew that night that he was going to kiss Jesus. Well, he didn't know that the opportunity maybe was going to present itself, but he had his plan. He was looking for the moment when he could kiss Jesus and Jesus could be taken into custody. Verse 23, and they began to discuss amongst themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. It's an interesting conversation. Do you think it's going to be you? Was he talking about you? I bet he's talking about you. Peter, oh, it's probably John. Kid's just out of control. You know, oh, no, it's you, Peter. You're stubborn. You're stuck in your ways. You're going to turn on him. Like, they're arguing amongst themselves. Like, which one of us is it going to be? In the Gospel of John, we're told I, that Peter, I think it was, whispered in John's ear and says, hey, you're like the kid around here. You're like Jesus's little kid brother. Why don't you le- whisper into his ear and ask him who's it's going to be? And John kind of leans over. And Jesus doesn't fall into their game. And this quickly shifts from a, a dispute to a discussion. Or a discussion to a dispute, excuse me. So they go from who's going to be the one that betrays them to, hey, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? He just talked about this is the last time he, he's going to eat and the kingdom of God's going to be established. And which one of us is going to be the top dog that gets to sit at the Lord's right side? I can just see Jesus shaking his head. He's like, guys, I've been with you for three years and this is as far as we've gotten. Like his patience with us abounds. It bring, I love the apostles because it gives me so much hope. And there arose a dispute. They're arguing with one another of, among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest amongst you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. He shows this total paradigm. He says, in the earthly realm, if you want to be the top dog, you basically claw your way to the top. You steamroll over people. You control people. But in my kingdom, it's the exact opposite. The way up is down. That you humble yourself. And this whole idea of servant leadership, even in the secular world now, is starting to sort of catch on. That the leaders, they might be, become better leaders if they actually lead by example. And that they humble themselves and they care about their people. He goes on to say, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now Luke kind of... This kind of glosses over this. We go into, if you really want to get a good account of the Lord's Supper, you go to the Gospel of John. He devotes chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17. Five chapters of the Gospel of John 
are dedicated to the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 13, the whole story begins as they go up to the Lord's Supper. They're sitting around and Jesus goes to their feet with a, with a pan and he begins washing their feet. And there's this, there's this sort of recoil, especially by Peter. And we don't do a whole lot of feet washing in our culture. I know some churches do. I've just never really been a bit. I just like, it just, we, we kind of, we don't do that. Like in just in our regular context, we don't do feet washing. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I just haven't been quick to volunteer to do this at our church. You know, that we could do it, I guess. I don't know. I'll be sick that day or something. You know, I don't still like people touching my feet. But their recourse is because they had sandals and they're walking and their feet were dusty and you could have just showered and been clean and then walk a mile, but your feet would be instantly dirty. And so when you'd walk into the house, this job was reserved for the very lowest person. It was reserved most likely for the slave on the bottom of the, uh, of the food chain. It was not to be done by anybody of importance. And as Jesus begins to watch Peter, washes Peter's feet, Peter says, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. Jesus says, unless you allow me to wash your feet, then you're not going to be able to enter the kingdom. And then Peter says, okay, well, don't just wash my whole feet, then wash my whole body. Jesus says, no, no, just let me wash your feet. In our context, I think that the equivalent of washing feet, the way it was viewed, would be like changing a bedpan of somebody that's sick and they have their, their, their bedpan stuff the side of the bed. That's something that not many of us would volunteer to do. But the person who does that for a spouse who does it for her husband or wife, like this, this embodies true love that, that somebody would serve in this sort of capacity. This is the sort of thing that Jesus is, is showing them is leading them by example. And he says, which is better to be reclined to the table or to be the one that serves. Well, naturally, you'd say to recline the table, but here I am serving you. In Mark, I turn my note over. In Mark, this verse kills me. It's not, not for because of what it says, but in Mark 10, 45, years ago, I'd become a, I'd be, I was a Christian for a couple of years. I was an active duty Navy SEAL. I was an instructor. I was at a very large like church with Miles McPherson. They heard about me and they needed to make a video. I don't do video. Like I, I've come a long way in my stuff. But at the time I was, you know, a guy who liked to be in the shadows, didn't do public speaking. They heard, oh, there's a Christian here who's Navy SEAL. And he's an instructor. We want to do a video with you having a little segment. I'm like, I don't want to do that. They're like, oh, come on, please. Okay. Like all we want you to say is to quote, Mark ten forty five, and then to say that it's about serving. Well, you guys know me long enough. I am really just not good about memorizing scripture. Like, I mean, I could do it, but if I start thinking about it, if I start thinking about it, then it's over for me. And here, this guy who used to like record for ESPN videographer, I'm at the convention center in San Diego, standing there with like hundreds of people around going, the son of man did not come to, to be served, but to, oh, cut, cut. I must have done it a hundred times. The guy was so kind and gracious to me. I finally got it, or he gave up on me and just rolled with 
So, but ever since in this verse has been like imprinted in my heart for the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many only know that because I was so scared to death and it took me a hundred times and restarts and do overs and stuttering through the gate. But Jesus tells him, I am God. I'm the creator and sustainer of the universe. Anybody who's worth being served is me. But when I come to earth, take on the form of a man and live my life the way I live is an example to you. And I serve like I do. I like from Jesus example and, and the seal teams are very much the same way how the officers lead by the front and they serve the enlisted guy in many, many ways as a pastor. I know Dolores, she's a sweetheart. Anytime there's a potluck, she wants to shoot me to the front of the line. And I say, no, 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 I'll be, I'm not going to shoot to the front of the line. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to shoot to the front of the line. Ain't nobody stopping me. And then she like delivers me this like huge plate with like more than I can even eat. It's like, pastor, I'm going to take care of you. I'm like, no, but, but Jesus said that I'm supposed to serve. And so it goes against, you know, like uh, just my nature, but, but that the example here is, is, is I kind of crack up I, when I go to places and I see the parking spot pastor out of the front and I, there's probably nothing wrong with it, but it, but I just kind of from scripture, I say, no, 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 I have the, I will take the back parking spot. Well, I have the front parking spot because the alarm now we have to kind of change things around. But Jesus is like, it's an opposite paradigm. That's one of the things I love about Chuck Smith and his great ministry God has done a big work through his ministry and people that know him say, oh, it's not uncommon that you come, you come to church and there he is fixing a urinal at two in the morning, you know. But I think that example is this humility that we're following the Lord's example and he's trying to teach him this. His very last night, this is the last lesson that he can give him during his earthly ministry. Verse 28, and there's just this like, this love that Jesus has for these 12 guys. These 12 guys were, were throwbacks in the religious world of their time. They didn't make it through all of the training. They were vocational guys. They were a tax collector who was hated. They were fishermen, blue-collar guys. Jesus selected them, walked with them, groomed them. 11 of them, or actually 10 of them, would be executed for their profession of Christ. But they turned the world right side up. That we know Christ, that we have this message, that our spiritual DNA, we can track it to one of these 12 guys, certainly. Eventually, if we had that capability, that all of us who came to know Christ, that these guys were bold. And Jesus loves them. And in verse 28, he says... You are those who have stood by me in my trials. He, he's talking to all of them, and yet one of them's already betrayed him. Peter's going to deny him. Verse 29, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And he will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Say, guys, stop getting in this squabble about who's going to be the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the Lord. You're my servant. You, you are not greater than me. Stop arguing amongst yourselves. Humble yourselves. Serve. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. And these 12 would, are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel someday. He goes on to say 31. And this one just kind of studying this one, especially last night of this morning. It's just, there's a sort of like breaking of my heart. And I, like, what, like poor Simon. There, somebody's going to betray somebody. They don't know who it is. We know that it's Judas. Well, not somebody's going to betray Jesus. Not somebody's going to betray somebody. Somebody's going to betray Jesus. Jesus has called them out. Doesn't name them. Then he goes to Simon. And he calls out Simon. And he says, Simon, Simon, to emphasize who he's talking to. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Where do you think everybody's eyes and hearts are going? It's Peter, the leader. The, the guy who has demonstrated such great faith, they see Jesus walking on water. Two people walked on water in human history. We only think of Jesus. But Peter gets out of the boat and he walks to Jesus for at least a few feet before his faith sort of crumbles. Then after the resurrection, when he's out fishing and Jesus shows up, I, in my heart, am convinced that Peter had no intention of swimming to shore. I thought he wanted to prove himself again by his great faith in seeing Jesus said he was going to run to shore. But when he went in, he went swimming. But poor, he says, Simon has demanded to sift you like wheat. That he's going to eat you up. And these warm, sweet words of Jesus in verse 32. But I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And you, once things have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows that Peter's going to, he's going to have a rough night tonight. He's going to stumble, but eventually God's going to lift him up and he's going to be used in the early church to lead the early church. Some 50 days from this point at Pentecost, when the spirit comes, it's Peter that is the bold preacher. In the first few chapters of Acts, we see Peter boldly proclaiming who Jesus is. But this attack, this satanic attack against Peter. Satan is real and he's, he's waging a war against us. Revelation 12.10 tells us, For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuse, accuses them before our God day and night. We're told that in heaven, Satan is there before God saying, for each one of us, look what they did. Look what they did. Look what they did. Look what they did. And if you've come to Christ and you've received God's forgiveness, the hardest forgiveness that I had to receive was learning how to accept his forgiveness. Like I was totally okay with God forgiving me, but I felt like he was letting me off scot-free. And I wanted to keep beating myself up. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving of this. I've stumbled. 
And I think that that's a ploy of Satan. And as we give in to allowing him to beat us up, what we do is we minimize the cross because we're told that he paid it all for us. Jesus is our advocate. 1 John 2, 1-2 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not, um, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. What's an advocate? An attorney. One who defends people based on the law. Who created the law? God created the law to point us to Christ, not for us to earn our salvation. And so as Satan is accusing us, we have the best attorney that you can retain. Jesus Christ is standing there with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. Satan doesn't want us to understand that Jesus paid it all for us. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And in him, through faith, through faith in him, we've been granted the righteousness of Christ. And as Satan accused, Jesus says, ah, 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 I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. They're clean. They're clean. They're clean. He intervenes for us. I love the great verse. You know, Romans 8, 28, we know for, you know, for, oh, let's see, I went too far. I started thinking about it. For all things work together for good for, to those who love, you know, something along those lines. But before that, what I love who here like really says, oh, I know how to pray. Don't raise your hands. It's rhetorical. But it's a, like, I don't feel like, who, are, who am I to pray? Like, it's, we struggle through this. The more we come to know him, it's, the, it's easier to communicate with the Lord. But don't worry about like messing it up. Because we're told in Romans 8, 26 and 27, the same way the spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. Amen. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Jesus says, Satan's going to come after you, Peter. He's going to sift you like wheat. It's going to be brutal. You're going to fail. You are going to fail but it's going to be okay. I'm pray, I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Once you come back, once you fail and you come back, God, I'm going to use you to strengthen those of the faith. And he did a mighty work doing that. And especially if you... Well, you look at Acts, but then if you look at Peter's books in the Bible that he wrote, First and Second Peter, it's all about suffering and enduring suffering and the great encouragement that Peter has provided for saints over the centuries through his words that God gave him. But Peter wasn't ready for this. In verse 33, he said to the Lord, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. That's a bold, bold statement. Bold. This is the Peter that within 
before sunrise, as Jesus says, he says, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied three times that you knew me, that you knew me. We're not talking about who he is. We're not talking about his claims, about the stuff he did, that he knew him. And if you do a, a like a, a, a well, I'm losing the word, I'm on sleep, but the, a, like a, when you collect all of the information, there's a fancy word that I'd rather use right now than, than this. Yes, synthesize, where you put them all together and you look at the, all of the stories and you go through the account of these three denials. Like Peter, a 12-year-old girl, says, hey, aren't you with them? He runs off using profanity, cursing. No, I don't even know him. What are you talking about? Leave me alone. Eventually, as Jesus is before them, and that rooster crows after he's denied that he knew the Lord three times, Jesus looks at him. And you just see the wording in the scripture is just that, that, that Peter just like, implodes with grief that he begins weeping and weeping and weeping and the word that's used there that there's there's a fire of coals the only other place in the new testament that that word is used is after the resurrection when jesus is talking to peter on the sea of galilee there was a coal of fire and jesus starts asking him do you love me peter says yes lord i love you and jesus changes the wording says, no, Peter, are you even my friend? But the, the English is, are, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. By the third time, he's like breaking down. Lord, you know I love you. Like, will you forgive me? I know I denied you three times. Well, is there any way for me to, to make myself right with you? And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Total reconciliation. And from that moment, Peter's a different man. But the point of this whole passage that I see what between Judas, between Peter, God wants us to see our weakness, which I'm horrible at that. I'm the first to raise my hand. I have a second. All of us, real quick. But though I don't like asking for directions. I don't like asking for help. I don't like, I'd rather help people. I'd rather do all this stuff. But we, just, we need to realize that we need help. Like this week and like all of this stuff, I've been going to a hardware store over and over again. I've come a long way. I've so like, okay, I'm just like, there's so many new things, I'm so tired. Instead of even beginning my quest where I search every aisle and then ask for help, I'm just walking in. Yeah, can you point me right to here? I haven't even looked yet. They're like, oh, it's over there. I'm like, that's what I thought it was. But if I, you know, it wouldn't have been there. But the Lord needs us to see that we're weak. And that's the whole point of communion. First, it's for believers. If you haven't trusted in Christ, it's as simple as believing that he died for you, that he became your payment for your sin. He wants to give you life. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, it's easy to get on this path of thinking that we've attained something, that we've become righteous, that as he does this work in our life, we forget where we were. And I understand that not everybody started in the same place. But for me, when I came to Christ, I was a broken, broken man. A kid when I look back. My whole world had fallen apart. 
I, I was helpless. The harder I tried, the worse it got. I called out to Jesus. The Spirit sealed me, and over the course of a couple years, I was not an overnight case. Things began to change. And now that I'm like 15 years down the road, it sure is easy to forget about back then. But we come to communion as it's a reminder that we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the first thing we're to do is to examine our hearts, that we as Christians still sin. We're sinless in the eyes of God. Our sin has been paid for, that our position before Christ, we're, we're covered. And one day we'll be fully sanctified in the next life where sin will no longer be an issue for us. But now sin is an issue for us. If you're in Christ, your sin doesn't, you don't lose your salvation, but you break your fellowship with him. And so communion forces us to kind of say, Lord, where am I missing the mark? Where does Satan have a foothold? How have I wandered from you? Lord, I need your help. I'm weak like Peter. I'm weak like Judas. I am vulnerable. So vulnerable and I need your help. And then as we're in that place, we take the the bread or the cracker and the juice and we remember, ah, Jesus on the cross, he gave himself for us. His body was broken for us. The Jews, he rose from the grave, the new covenant. There's life. There's hope. We no longer fear death. Our hope in the next life, our hope that we have eternal life now, that God is working through all of our circumstances. Every person that we encounter, which is the third aspect of communion that we see, I think it's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. That says, for as often as you take this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're reminded that it's not just about us and our holy huddle. That Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Every single person that you've ever encountered, Jesus on the cross loved them and he gave his life for them. And he's working desperately to reach them. And he's commissioned us to go out and to share the gospel. It's not our job to save them. It's, it's our job to sow seed. Just to sow seed. The pressure is not on us. It's not on the eloquence of your delivery. It's not on your so having such a sharp knife that, that if, you, if you don't lead the person to Christ, it's all on you. No, the Spirit of God takes his word and he does a work. And you have no idea how God's working in that person's life. It could be something that you said that takes effect five years later that God uses. So we're going to take communion. We're going to sing a song. Keith Green song? I don't know. Yeah, he's nodding. So awesome. We're blessed. But I just want us, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to have um, Rick kind of do the communion since I've been like blowing my nose and like, you know, all that mildew or not mildew, but dust from yesterday. But just take the time to ask the Lord, Lord, show me what it is in my heart. Lord, maybe you need to believe in him. If you're not a Christian, you're not sure this isn't for you. But if you're a Christian, this is for you, that we're to confess our sins. And we're told that as we confess our sins, he cleanses us. He makes us righteous. He restores our fellowship with him. We remember what Jesus did on the cross, the covenant that he conquered death. And as we watch our bodies deteriorate and we see 
sin kind of take over and deteriorate our body, we know that this body isn't it. It's our next life. We're going to get new bodies, a new hope, eternity with him. And I'd ask yourself, who is the person that you know that doesn't know Jesus? That maybe you can, I don't know how God will work through you to share the gospel with them. Our job is to be willing. Lord, use me. Here I am. And so when you're ready, just come and get your element. Take it back to your seat and take it. And if you need help, please just lean over to the person or raise your hand and we'll have somebody get the elements to you. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We, we throw the term love around so loosely. Lord, I pray that you would help our minds and hearts to be open to the to the reality of what your love for us means, that the depth of your love, that before the foundations of the world happened, you knew us by name. You knew the hairs on our head. You knew the situation that we would be born into, and you would establish a plan that we might be redeemed from this, this life of death that we are born into. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. That he paid it all. All to him we owe, not for, not for salvation, but out of our love for him. Father, we come before you and we recognize, Lord, that our hearts are desperately sinful, Lord. That we, we are so easily caught off guard that we are we're simply like put on a slight course that misses the mark so father we pray that you would show us areas in our heart lord that satan might have a a foothold lord help us to take action lord to increase our fire and our passion and our zeal for you but we're the first to admit we don't even know how to do that we're totally inadequate and so we come to you for help we love you lord And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.